go. Okay, let's put the script on. Let's just go up. I have pillows everywhere in order to help absorb the sound without possibly killing me. So, good morrow, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, children, and welcome back to another episode of Crow and Ferdin's Guide to Weird Fiction, Folklore, Mythology, and Everything in Between, where I, Crow, talk to you guys about weird fiction and other person. The Fern. <laughs> she, Fern. Talks about folklore. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and together... Yeah, you, you say it. <laughs> you say it. I talk about folklore and mythology. Go ahead. <laughs> and then together we cover everything in between. Otto's here to say hi. Please, Bubba, don't come anywhere near the recording setup. Mother has meticulously put together. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, Otto, Otto. Uh, cut into intro music. <laughs> He really does. He's looking at my longan um, seeds. Have you have you tried longan? I do. They're delicious. I love They're them. fucking amazing. I absolutely love them. They're so sweet, so juicy, and I'm pretty sure the seeds are toxic to cats because everything is toxic to cats. And Otto, if you eat one, I will not take you to a vet, Bubba. I'm sorry. She's like, she will take you to a vet. I will, and I'll cry, and then they'll be like, oh my god, this fucking idiot who always shows up with one kind of cat-related toxicity or another. He's giving my tissues kisses. Anyway, guys, um, I hope you've all been doing fantastic. I'm pretty sure everyone is totally, totally not surprised that my episodes have been taking 10 billion years to be put up. It's, I will give Fern the opportunity to make one snarky remark about this. You're allowed one. Um, Actually, you're allowed two because I'm feeling generous. <laughs> I was going to say, there will be more than one, but probably behind the scenes. Uh, no, I was just going to say, like, I kept it together so long. <laughs> she really did. Okay, that was one. Hit me with another. No, I'm saving it. I'm saving it for a special occasion. I don't want to run out. God damn it. <laughs> but it's okay. She deserves it because she did keep it together for a very long time while I went through exam shit and I completely blew it to smithereens. Listen, listen, we have to remain true to our character. So like autism and ADHD, we have to stick to it. It's just me showing people what it's like. I'm kidding. <laughs> I really it's didn't mean to. ADA, I feel like it's the perfectionism that's going to be about the ADHD. It's, it's, it's true, though. It's like this always happens with not just this, but like a billion other tasks that I have to get done. Yeah. Um, my brain will be like, oh, my God, this is going to be so much work. And instead of being like a normal person who just starts the task and then the task like breaks down into teeny bi tiny bits and then is finished, completed... Uh, my brain's just like, no, no, we're just not going to do it. And even though I really want to do it, but I'm forcing myself. And even though I am late, I do have a lot of stuff planned. So Soylent Green has been a while in the making, but I'm pretty proud of this episode. So boom, that's what we're going to be talking about today. 
The title of today's episode is Soylent Green, A Tale of Ecological Dystopias. Da-dum-dum-dum. I've been looking forward to this one. Soylent why? Green. I want to uh, know why. Because I want to shout their catchphrase, and I can't until after you get to what it is. Because otherwise exactly. <laughs> exactly, it will spoil it. Okay, Otto is still trying to eat the script. No, Bubby, that's enough. In case you guys missed out, Otto is my new cat. His full name is Othello. He's a Siberian, and he likes making my life. Oh, he just went over to Poe, and Poe just reached out his arms and grabbed him and hugged him. And now they're trading Aww. kisses. So fucking gross, you guys. <laughs> such a traumatic. It's like, I, these children that I raised, your balls will be taken, Otto. Just give it a few months. You're still a baby. Oh, come on, Poe, don't lick him. He just got groomed. Whatever. Okay, so focusing back again. Soil and Green, we're going to be talking about ecological dystopias. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are familiar with dystopias as a, as dystopias as a genre. It's recently become incredibly popular because the world is bursting into flames as we speak. Um, and also it became really popular after YA decided to, I don't know, capitalize on it the way they capitalized on vampires, which totally doesn't piss Fern off, has never pissed her off. We've never had intense conversations about how accurate twilight vampires are you know everyone knows twilight vampires aren't accurate it's it's like the draculas that throw people off and, and i've really come to peace with the fact that western vampires are just not the traditional vampires are it's it's kind of its own mythological thing now that's separate and different from actual like original vampires you see how calm and logical she is? Just wait for one dude to mispronounce a Romanian name and the true fern <laughs> will come out. Like, she'll be like, yeah, I understand. People can have different viewpoints and someone will yeah. be like, I don't know. I can't even think of a Romanian uh, name to mispronounce. It's, think no, of one the, for me. The ones that I was getting annoyed with are the ones where it was like egregiously wrong to the point that you felt like they weren't even trying. Or when they start to try and tell you that that's what it is. And it's like, listen, don't tell me how to pronounce Romanian words when you don't speak Romanian. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, don't sit there and try Fair. and tell me it's tepish, it's sepish. I, I, I knew you were going to bring <laughs> sepish up. I was just thinking so, it. I was like, she's going to bring so it up. She's going to. I was doing countdown. Like, they're so stubborn. They're like, no, no. I heard it on Castlevania, it's tempish, and it's like, well, Castlevania did a really shit job at pronouncing Romanian words, so please don't use that as a reference. <laughs> Isn't Castlevania fucking Japanese? Has anyone heard, okay, I'm sorry for um, doing an Attack on Titan reference so early on, but, they're, they're, like, the songs, no, the songs are supposed to be German, but they sing, like, the person singing the German songs is a Japanese lady, and her voice is fucking beautiful. I love it. I love that song. But you cannot tell that it's German. So I just, like, if they're trying to pronounce Romanian names, I would not think that they're yeah. pronouncing them very accurately. Like, I would not use them as a source. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, even, like, documentaries tend to get really, really wrong. Um, 
It was just like when I finally I finally listened to the Morbid episode on Korea Bashi and mm. then it actually did a really pretty good job <laughs> pronouncing that and I was I was surprised. I was like, Oh, someone said something in Romanian correctly? What? <laughs> Congratulations, Elena. We love you. For Listen, pronouncing. This is what happens yes. when you take the time to look up how things are supposed to be pronounced. But Dude, but say. I swear to God, I do look up how things are supposed to be pronounced. I look them up 10 billion times, but I forget, even when I break them down into little bits. Uh, yeah, no, that, Some, I it's can't roll my R's. Well, and that's, like, when I'm trying to decide if someone has pronounced something correctly or not, or, or like, judging whether someone has pronounced something correctly or something. I, I do give leeway for things like a lot of people can't rule their R's. Some of the vowels don't exist in English and are hard to say. And so, like, I'll, yeah, I'll give some leeway for that, you know? <laughs> Seppish. What did you just hey, <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I could feel the punch miles and miles away. Anyway. So, like I said, dystopias are an incredibly interesting genre. They've become more popular recently with the rise of YA. You've got things like Hunger Games and Divergent and the 10 billion uh, dystopian novels that go like, what if, you know, we made people pay for every word they said? Um, what if people couldn't see and everyone died? What if people couldn't sleep and everyone died? Um, I don't know. What if the world was divided by colors and everyone died? What if people are not allowed to experience human emotion anymore and everyone died? So basically it, ba it turned into a competition into which person can come up with the craziest ideas into how to divide um, society. But um, in its essence, it's a pretty interesting genre because I believe that dystopias reflect a certain sense of intense suffocating anxi anxiety that can only be processed through the art of hyperbole and the worst case scenario. Interested? Yes. Tell me more. <laughs> so, <laughs> if we're to look at uh, the dystopian, the dystopian, sorry, fiction of specific time periods, we can usually find a pattern in the most popular works of said period. So I'm not saying that all of the works written in a certain period follow the same pattern. I'm saying the ones that pop out the most or become the most popular, and I think they become the most popular because they reflect um, the general population's fears as well. So, for example, if we look at the dystopias of the period before the 1960s and 1970s, let's say, you know, early 1900s, um, we see 1984, which reflects the looming fear of communist and socialist ideologies taking over the world, suffocating the human mind, creativity, individuality, and free speech. We see Fahrenheit that reflects the ideological repression of the Soviet Union, uh, Nazi Germany, censorship, the quelling of the human spirit. We see false utopias like Brave New World, painted by individ individuals that march to the beat of an assembly line, stripped of emotion choice, ambition, and the individuality that makes them human. Um, or perhaps the novel that burst, uh, like that caused the burst of dystopian fiction as a genre and may have inspired some of the works that I have and will mention later on. We, by a Russian author whose name is usually pronounced as Eugene Zamyatin, even though I don't think that's the Russian pronunciation of it. I do not speak Russian, so I cannot help you there. 
what you're romanian you don't speak russian aren't they basically the same i'm so sorry every single <laughs> romanian listener we have has just like <laughs> called out for my execution that was totally a joke i'm making fun of people who think that i can't tell you how many times people are like oh romanian that's a slavic language right no it's not it's a i mean i had a romanian i had a romanian friend that was like romanians or slavs and then and then Fern was very confused. Yeah, I was like, let me pull out um, the ethnic gene chart and show you that that's not the case. <laughs> I was also confused because I just believed whatever was said to me. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry, um, author of We. Um, so- <gasps> no! Poe just walked over the, <laughs> the fucking screen. I'm so sorry. Okay. So, um. (laughs) Okay. So, we looks into mass surveillance. Um, or maybe let's take a look at one of the earliest documented works of dystopian fiction. Do you know who that was by? Um, Guess. I keep thinking of Isaac Asimov and his Foundation series, but I know there's going to be some earlier than that yeah um 1800s 1800s i don't know what the first one was what was the well technically it's not the first first one but it was the first documented one of dystopian fiction as we know it um it was by none other than mary shelley it was called the last man yes she is brilliant as a writer love her yes Yes, and that's why I I asked you to guess, because you love her. I do love her, but I didn't know that one. (laughs) The point is, so Mary Shelley's The Last Man was published in 1826. It comes during an age of tuberculosis, smallpox, and scarlet fever, though they're not the only themes of the novel. They basically um, talk about a pandemic that wiped out the human race as we know it. Or, for example, the rapidly developing fear of technology in Jules Verne's Paris in the 20th century. My point is, humans are always afraid of something. Sometimes to the extent we like to imagine a world where our fears consume existence as we know it, perhaps as a warning to those around us of what will happen if no action is taken to stop this future from progressing. So, that's where ecological dystopias come in. Ecological dystopias may seem more popular now as a discussion about climate change and environmental disasters has become an incredibly urgent topic, for good reason, but they weren't always this way. So we have this dude called Robert McFarlane. Apparently he's the son of the doctor who contributed to the score that we have called Curb 65. It's a score for pneumonia and we basically use it to decide whether a patient requires urgent admission or not. It's pretty cool. They hammered it in our heads for my exam. But what's important to know is that this dude is a nature writer. He encouraged the development of what he called an imaginative repertoire to warn against the impending crisis of climate change. 
But, um, believe it or not, McFarlane was against portraying climate change through apocalyptic, apocalyptic scenarios because climate change is in and of itself a slow and gradual process. However, that didn't stop writers from doing exactly the opposite of that, which many think was and is needed. Because, you know, through the power of hyperbole, you can actually shake people into believing that matters are urgent, so that we take urgent action. But, you know, I, I wish I wish that would have helped in the case of climate change. But I guess not even Soylent Green, the Mad Adam trilogy, Tender is the Flesh, or The Drowned World could shake some sense into us. No, because we have politicians bringing snowballs into session in Ziploc bags saying, this is proof there's no climate change, so you can't help everyone. <laughs> And no, you heard about um, like one of the teens that um, came to the clinic today was telling me about Project Willow, which is apparently, I don't know what it is, some kind of oil excavation thing in Alaska. And uh, no, scientists, know yeah. you know it, yeah. And yeah, so basically they've war warned that it will affect the climate in ways that are completely irreversible. And they still went ahead with it, so... Very sad, indeed. Yeah. What brings me comfort is that hopefully I will die before the world bursts into flames. So, many attribute the movement, like environmental um, uh, activism. activism. Uh, so, the rise in popularity is due to Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was a book that detailed the disinformation spread by chemical companies promoting pesticides, bearing the lead on the physical, psychological, and environmental effects they had, uh, particularly a pesticide known as DDT, which is an insecticide, uh, the use of which was banned in the United States in 1972. Um, basically, she started that movement, people started looking into it scientists were no longer afraid to publish their findings um, until it was banned. It's still used in some uh, parts of the world to combat things like malaria. So mosquitoes that spread malaria, basically. But yeah, so um, the publication of that book sort of led to a snowballing effect leading to the rise of the environmental movement, leading to environmental dystopias, one of which is Soylent Green. A movie from the 1970s set in 2022, the year of our Lord that has passed a couple of months ago. Can you believe it's April? It's a, it's a book too, though, isn't it? Um, no, it's loosely... Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, no. Um, it's loosely based on another science fiction uh, novel called Make Room, Make Room. I was going to say, so. it's not a book I've read. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's I've read. Um, but yeah, the... The movie, I think, is what people remember. Um, definitely, what I, I, so in fairness, I have to say I saw part of the movie. I caught part of it on, like, cable one night, and uh, have ne I've never seen the full thing, so, but I have seen enough that I know about Soil and Green. I know what it is. <laughs> she knows what Soylent Green is. I feel like most people do. It's been referenced in everything from, like, The Simpsons to South Park to probably Bob's Burgers. I'm not even sure. Um, it's referenced in a lot of works. I feel like most people know what Soylent Green is. Uh, did you know that there's a product called Soylent Green? Um, I tried to get my hands on it, but it was I... way too expensive, and apparently it tastes like shit. Like, I'm not putting myself through chocolate mint 
for a meme. I, I thought I was the one that told you about the product. <laughs> you did. I think I think you were. I think you were actually. <laughs> listen. I was like, listen, I've seen it at Walmart. <laughs> You guys have it in Walmart. People will be surprised by, like, you know, the kinds of products that you find in the U.S. that cost an arm and a leg and six poses to get here. But, like, yeah. So, unfortunately, I could not get my hands on Soylent Green. Well, I mean, I could. But it costs, like, almost $20. And I was like, am I going to spend $20 on something that I'm going to take one sip of and then go, like, ew, is it worth it for the podcast? Maybe if we start a Patreon and people contribute a dollar per person, if we have 20 Patreons, I'll, I'll do that for you guys. Except, no, I won't. It's wasteful. That's what we're discussing here. Anyway, so let's jump right into things before um, we continue to dissect what ecological dystopias are. We start out with a slideshow of crowded cities that transition into slums showcasing pollution, overcrowded streets, overpopulation, desolate forests, landfills, mountains of waste... And then we cut to the image of a debilitated building and the movie informs us that we're in New York City where the population is currently at a whooping 40 million. A man sits in a cramped bedroom surrounded by various books and other knickknacks. He turns on the TV or a program promoting, you guessed it, Soylent Green, a new delicious high-energy food that's insanely popular and currently in short supply. Another man, an old dude with a beret, turns the TV off and calls it all bullshit. So these are, are our two, well, one of them is our main character, um, Thorn, and the other one is Saul, his basically buddy that, you know, works alongside him. Uh, Thorn is a detective and Saul is basically his research buddy that helps nice. him dig up shit. Yes. So, buddy, uh, buddy cop movie. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I love it too. I, I genuinely love the dynamic between these two. I think it was very well written and we'll get into it. The conversation between them um, reveals how dystopian this world is. The unemployment rate for one. There are like 20 million people out of work in Manhattan alone. Fresh food is incredibly is in incredibly short supply. So the poor or average um, are left with tasteless, order, odorless crud. The soil has been poisoned. The water having dried up. The climate burnt up with the greenhouse effect. They have to power up the house by charging up batteries um, through peddling like hamsters. Um, <laughs> so Roth literally has to Assassin's Creed his way over the railings of the stairs that are littered with homeless people. You can't see anything outside amidst the green smog. The streets are buried in broken down cars and every inch teeming with humans with nowhere to go. It's a really terrifying image of where the world might take us. Naturally, not everyone has to live in such despair because we cut into the 1970s retro-futuristic apartment where another old dude and a lady are enjoying gadgets and gizmos. Um, they're gadgets and it's basically an old Atari game that people are like, oh my gosh, so oh future, much, I don't know, coolness. So everything is, yeah, tell me. People who have money are investing in old Atari systems right now, so... Maybe the future is now? There is no winning, is there? Um, so everything is in clean, crisp colors, sterile, white, vivid oranges. Their skin is clean, their eyes are bright, their hair is 
glistening. And perhaps most importantly, they have access to actual fresh food that they get from special supplies. Real meat like you've never seen before. And by that, I do not mean weenuses, but actual meat, you guys. No one went there except for you. <laughs> Badum dum tis. Everyone went there. Every single time I say vitamin D, someone giggles. I'm like, you're going to die. It's Maxine. not my fault vitamin D is funny. Who, like, why? Rickets. Osteoporosis, guys. You can't keep giggling every time I say vitamin D. Vitamin dick. <laughs> vitamin D's nuts. God. This is why doctors are going extinct. Anyway, uh, we're, we're then shown a peculiar scene of basically one of the poors, the pavos, as the British like to say, who manages to sneak into old man Rich Bones' apartment while he's drinking, I don't know, the tears of the peasants, and smacks him in the head with a lead pipe in what I'm sure is a cathartic scene to many. This podcast does not condone eating the rich. Or anyone. But we can't stop you from I mean. doing so. It's true. We're not going to vouch for you at your trial, but we're also not going to, you know, like, boo. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, we'll just be, we'll be neutral for we're now. Neutral. We're neutral. We will show up at your execution in, like, really fancy robes and wink at you from the corner of the room, and you will die happy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no one gets executed anymore. Anyway, and herein comes our man from the very beginning of the movie. Um, basically, I already introduced you guys to him, Robert Thorne. He's here to investigate the case of Rich McRichbones, William Simonson. Simonson, really? Just call me Crow McCrosson. The third. I bet, I bet Simonson is a real name, and then you're gonna be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, Nora." God damn it! Why do I always do this? Why do I have to make fun of people and then get roasted? I mean, I don't know, but I, I, if you're gonna make fun of people, I'm probably gonna roast you because that's my <laughs> my favorite target to that's roast. That's her thing. Like, if you're make fun of people. <laughs> you know what? You know what? We're gonna have two fern quiz times in this episode. I initially oh. only planned for one. Yes. <laughs> so, um, William Simonson, whose occupation is rich. I mean, that's literally what they say in the movie. Um, um, what's it called? Thorne asks the um, bodyguard. He's like, so what, what's his occupation? And the bodyguard's like, rich. <laughs> Thorne is not amused. Um, but no, he's actually involved in law, politics, and is a board member at Soylent Corporations. We're also introduced to um, Simonson's concubine, that who they also refer to as furniture because you know women are furniture i mean like it's not actually it's not a sexist thing it's more of a rich criticism thing it's more of a rich asshole thing yeah yes her name is actually cheryl but i heard it as cheryl and i just said cheryl throughout the script because auditory oh. processing disorder so cheryl um seems to have liked the man she even describes him as a gentleman and seems offended when thorn is surprised that simonson hasn't bruised her up because dystopias 
The body is collected and Simonson's bodyguard informs a dismayed Cheryl that it will probably be treated through waste disposal. Keep that in mind, children. There are no longer any ceremonies for the dead, as there were when Cheryl's grandmother died. I think what brings out the melodrama here is the acting rather than the essence of the scenes because you get like the vacant look in Cheryl's eyes, the way she speaks in the classic 1960s drawl, the way they cry as if the movie is being acted by a bunch of teenagers. They literally like at one point one of the actors cries and just like covers his eyes with his hand and goes boo hoo and I'm like god damn it. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no seriously no, he goes really? he literally he literally goes and i'm like the fuck man i ain't paying for this i'm not i mean i wasn't paying for it it's on internet ar- archive but still oh, yeah, i'm sure it is yeah yeah it is Perfect. yeah Mm-hmm. so now i know this is an old movie and a lot of people including me will roll their eyes at it for various reasons but i still thought it was very effective in some of the scenes like for example the scenes where thorn takes a look through simonson's apartment he marvels at simple commodities we take for granted nowadays like the running water soap clean towels even the ability to read when he asks the bodyguard if he can read and write uh, thorn even steals some things and packs them up for saul the old man I mentioned at the beginning of the movie. He nabs some reference books that Saul loves. Um, like Basically, Saul starts reminiscing about the good old days where books were common when paper wasn't so rare. Um, and then Saul, here's the boohoo scene. When he's dismayed by these memories, he starts to cry. And you sympathize with Thorne and Saul's um, bond here by how Thorne attempts to comfort him, telling him it isn't so bad. But um, the reason to Thorne it isn't so bad is because this is all he's ever known compared to Saul, who's lived in a world that wasn't quite so decrepit. So, and like another example is when at the department Thorne works for, a fellow detective points out that Saul is getting on in years and it might be time to make arrangements. And you can see how prickly Thorne gets and keeps saying it's not the time to think about that. So I really, really like their bond in that regard. I feel like they genuinely care about each other. Um, I didn't really care for the romance that they kept trying to push between Thorne and Cheryl because there needs to be a romance always, forever. But um, yeah, I feel like the other relationships in the movie were developed far better. And I'm not saying Thorne and Saul, like I'm not shipping them or anything of the sort. I'm just saying like as a human relationship between the two, I genuinely appreciated it. Um, do you want to add anything? No, I just, I'm, I'm thinking about later scenes that come. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Thorne's theory is that the bodyguard was the one that murdered um, Simonson, which we know isn't true, but he doesn't. Um, Because like we saw the person in the very beginning who murdered and we just don't know if that person acted of their own volition or was possibly sent by someone. Done. Ooh, mystery, mystery. So um, he's no, he has no reason to suspect Cheryl, who's referred to as furniture by the co-worker, but he's still assigned to investigate the case. He cuts through alleyways congealed with humans and ends up uh, at the apartment of one Martha Phillips and Mr. Fielding, who's the bodyguard. 
Mr. Fielding is the bodyguard. Um, it seems to be a middle-class apartment. It's not as big as the one that we initially saw, um, but there's clean furniture, plenty of room to walk around. Again, crisp colors, dazzling porcelain dishes, plush cushions, and food. Rice, a jar of jam that Martha quickly hides and seem, seems antsy about Thorn finding because it's super expensive so one it's strawberry jam and one jar of strawberry jam in this movie will set you back 150 1970s buckaroos i mean they probably didn't take inflation into account because 150 dollars in 2020 money is probably what you do need to pay for a jar of jam (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah. it'd be interesting to see it uh calculated for inflation the other thing I keep thinking is like their budget for extras in this movie must have been insane. <laughs> right? There were so many people and even more so in the scene in the scenes to come. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, Thorne is more interested in the incinerator in their apartment, which Martha tells him doesn't work. I got the impression that Martha was also a concubine of Fielding's because she says she should have offered Thorne something, wink wonk, when he arrived at the apartment. And Thorne is more interested in the spoon dipped in jam that she was trying to hide from him, and he steals it. Yeah. Sticky fingers, this Thorne. <laughs> Literally, 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 but it's okay because he takes the strawberry jam coated spoon to Saul and it brings the small Saul great happiness. So I am happy. Um, He goes back to (laughs) his apartment where he and Saul enjoy crisp lettuce and bean chili, real apples, basically all of which I'm guessing that Thorne stole because I couldn't really figure out where he got all that from, but I'm pretty sure he stole it. It's an incredibly cute scene, though, because Thorne sees how Saul wipes the apple against his shirt to make it shiny, and Thorne follows suit because he's not sure what to do with actual apples. Um, I think it was one of my favorite scenes because there's cheery music, there's genuine happiness shining in the lines of their faces, the smiles they trade with one another, um, how much they enjoy each other's company, basically. It's precious wholesome it really is it's wholesome in this horrible horrible movie but let's get back to business soul has managed to find out more about simonson bunch of rich people shit like how he graduated yale and worked in law and had connections and then they find out that he's the principal partner of a company that ended up being acquired by the soylent company um and um he owned that previous company with uh the governor santini keep that in mind because that's the governor that showed up at the the very beginning of the movie when they mentioned Soylent Green on the TV like literally very first scene um so Thorne in, really likes this information he takes off again to update his boss tells him of his suspicion that he st- he thinks he's being followed he still thinks that it might be Fielding the bodyguard because how the hell can a bodyguard afford strawberry jam worth $150 a jar the scene cuts to Thorne's boss talking to a shady individual that wants them to cooperate with a governor the shadiness continues Indeed. um yeah there's there's a lot they of shadiness not stop there We then take a look into the world of the furniture, aka the concubines kept by the rich. Because they come in all shapes and colors, they're all dressed in flowy pastel robes and daintily float through a classy room with sleek furniture, artificial plants, frosted glass panels, and decorative chains hanging from the walls. In the words of Michael Fassbender, kinky. Um, so... (laughs) 
Thorn okay. person. <laughs> You're very proud of that one, I can tell. <laughs> I am, I really am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, it's not even in the script, by the way. I came up with it on the spot, so yes, I am very proud. <laughs> so you like that so I need double points for that one. <laughs> Kinky. Um so Thor- Thorn bursts in, he marvels and all the luxuries, the furniture. I don't even know, should I say the furniture has or the furniture have? Because they're multiple pieces of furniture, which are actual human beings. What's mm-hmm. the grammatical rule here? Um, so, it's one of those ones where it's plural, but referred to in the singular. So the furniture has... That's actually fair. say the furnitures have. That wouldn't make sense. Yes. <laughs> That's a, no, it, th- that's fair. So, luxuries like ice and cigarettes, stating he would smoke two to three of these a day if he could afford them. You don't need any more politans, Thorn, you idiot. But anyway, he takes Cheryl into one of the rooms to ask her a few questions. So he tells her, get on the bed, right? And I thought it was a joke at first because she starts to literally make the bed. Um, and then they, they just talk casually. Um, he tells her that he thinks that Simonson was assassinated and asks her if she knows, you know, anyone he could have been connected with. She mentions Santini, who was Simonson's partner in the company he owned before it was purchased by Soylent. And she talks about a, like, a church that they used to go to and a priest that they used to speak to. Um, and then it gets weird. Just then. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because um, Cheryl strips and gets in bed and Thorne follows and you expect them to snoo snoo, but they keep talking about this old dude who used to take Cheryl to church and not want to have sex with her and would just spontaneously start to cry. Then they do snoo snoo. How would you react if you were going to snoo snoo with a dude and he just started crying? I think I would feel really bad for him. I would just, I would just yeah, yeah, that'd be not super, think. Super awkward. I have yeah. I have heard people say that um, sometimes when guys get prostitutes, they just want to be like held or they want to talk Aww. or cry or whatever, and that's a um, that breaks that's my a heart. Commentary on society on its own. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I don't like. I know. I don't know. People on Reddit, I guess, think that that's mm-hmm. cringe. I just think it's sad. Because I feel like a lot of people, I'm, I'm going to digress for a little while. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate how difficult it is to make friends as an adult, especially for men, because it's not like male friendships are just not as emphasized or viewed as like normal as female friendships, especially on an emotional level. There was actually this whole study that was done on why things like um, the friend zone exist is because um, when women open up to other women, it's considered like normal, like that's a normal dynamic where we can be best friends and I open up to you and I view you as a friend, but men usually only open up to their romantic partners. So when when a woman opens up to them they interpret it as she views me as a romantic partner and are then shocked when they're in the friend zone whereas the woman views them the way that she would view other women does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um yeah that does make sense i don't know why i went there i i don't know women value friendships a lot more it seems like because i know like my mom is friends with half the city i swear um and my dad is i 
He's friends with his sister. <laughs> anyway, um, they do the snoo snoo, and then there's this dude called Charlie, who's like, I don't know, the pimp or the dude who owns a concubine company, barges into the concubine party, starts slapping women around because that's totally normal. Then Thorne steps in and tells him to stop. Because the reason the concubines are here breaking rules and regulations by drinking, I guess, is because Thorne asked them here for questioning. He then kicks Charlie out. After Charlie leaves, uh, Cheryl shows us that she's made of exactly one dimension by defending um, Charlie the way she seems to defend every stoic, uh, stoic sorry, abusive man she's ever met. It pisses Thorne off the same way it pisses the rest of us off, and he asks her if anything ever makes her angry. Of course not, Thorn. She's furniture. You ever see a chair get angry? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <sighs> my eminent... That, my inner, my inner feminist felt that. I, she was just punched into the gut. <laughs> well, I'm about to punch her again because Miss Furniture gets frisky and invites Thorne to stay over because she doesn't want to be alone. The quickest developing romance I have ever seen in my life. I'm literally not even skipping anything between the first snoo snoo scene and then suddenly them falling in one another's arms and daydreaming about strawberries. Like, the fuck, man? Well, that's... I, I feel like, okay, so I'm just going to say this. Like, I feel like old um, versions of romance, okay. uh, you know, whether you're talking about movies or shows or whatever, it, it tends to be portrayed in a really weird and unrealistic way. Um, and I, I feel like there was less of an emphasis on getting to know the woman as a person and viewing her as a human. And that's part of the reason why, because then you could just make um, romance all about physicality, whether you were physically attracted, whether or not um, she seemed socially acceptable and things like that, and not about whether or not you had a connection, because there really yeah. wasn't an emphasis on making a connection the way there is now. Yeah. Uh, it, it was an issue with the way that we, we saw people, uh, like the way women yeah. were viewed. And I think this is why, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about how boomer humor is, I hate my wife. Um, well, if you've, if you've never built a relationship and it was built solely on physicality and there was never anything about like connecting to each other on a deeper level, then where is the bond that's going to keep you two in love? You know, like obviously not everyone followed that. Obviously yep. there were people who really did you know share pieces of themselves and fall in love but there were a lot of people who didn't and i feel like that's um that lack of foundation for a relationship is why we have so much i hate my wife exactly and this was like this movie was still at a time where that was very prevalent it was still 1973 and i feel like people tend to think of it as more of oh the 40s or the 60s where you know that kind of mentality was more it was more prevalent maybe then but it was still pretty fucking prevalent um up until i would even say the 90s i feel like people um were yeah, i was gonna say the 90s right too. i was gonna say the 90s too. because i remember yeah. like mm -hmm. i mean i didn't i'm i'm like a late 90s baby kind of but i remember 
you know, growing up during that time. And just that was still very, very prevalent. Like the kind of jokes where men are always like, oh, you know, the, the, the wife and the kids, they spend all my money as if the guy is not a part of the familial unit. Um, and the woman is like, you know, oh, the children and the husband make my life miserable as if she's not a part of the familial unit. It's really weird. People went from nuclear family to nuclear assholes. Um, there's a lot of actual psychology that goes into it, but um, that's just my superficial observation. Well, I think you could also, I think you could also spend a lot of time dissecting sitcom humor and how toxic it yes. can be. Like, uh, there's a lot of humor about degrading other people, um, or other characters, uh, especially within the family unit. And I, I feel like there has been some call out of that and hopefully some progression i don't know i don't watch sitcoms if i'm honest I, I don't like how negative they they are to everyone else in the sitcom you know like it's just one person trying to seem superior making fun of other people i feel like it depends like i've never ever liked things like um american dad or family guy but i've always kind of enjoyed the old simpsons and now i enjoy things like bob's burgers where you feel like people like for example i don't know Correct me if I'm wrong, but like in Family Guy or American Dad, you don't really feel like anyone cares about anyone else. It's just chaos. Yeah. Whereas they're they're pretty terrible to each other, and that's yeah. what I'm talking about. But the ones that you mentioned, I don't feel like have that same exactly uh, because I I do know those ones, and it, it's more like you know Bob's Burger. They're a family trying to work through exactly together, and. and because it's less toxic, it's more tolerable. <laughs> it's it's better. Sorry, tolerable sounds negative. I, I <laughs> take that word back. It, it's, it's better. better. It, it's nice to see families getting along. Even Simpsons in a lot of ways, like they're kind of a weird family dynamic, but um, they do. Seem I started disliking. Other, I disliked the nice. Simpsons <laughs> because they went from being your regular American family to being celebrities. Like you know, Lady Gaga will stop her whole show because Lisa Simpson doesn't like her, um, and I don't know. The moon landing will just be erased from history because the Simpsons weren't there to I don't know officiate it. Like it was. It was pretty. Like that's when it started to get cringe to me. How did we get to the fucking Simpsons? I love this podcast. I don't know. Um. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I would agree that early Simpsons had an element of the way the Simpsons yeah. lost. Um, and I, I don't think that's a controversial take. It, yeah. I, there are like 10 billion different um, videos on it uh, about it on YouTube. But let's get, go back to Soylent, because um, after the Snoo Snoo, basically um, Thorne goes to the priest that we mentioned in order to investigate, but the priest can't really give him a lot of information. And then we also see more evidence of the um, overcrowding, because um, what leads him to the priest is that at the church's doors um, is basically you know, a deceased mother and like the child is next to her, so he takes the child who is alive and takes him into the church gives him to one of the sisters um so it's basically an orphanage and like a place where all homeless people go because of the overpopulation it's an incredibly heart-wrenching like scene all in all but um so the priest can't give him a lot of details because um basically um 
what was his name? Uh, Simonson. Um, whatever Simonson told him was in confession, and he wants to keep like the sanctity of confession. Um, and we don't get much of that because um, the priest is then murdered by Fielding the bodyguard and at the same time uh governor santini informs thorn superior to tell him to end the investigation immediately um and that he should file a false report onto what happened to simonson but thorn is terrified of losing his job we said that so many people are unemployed so he thinks that if he's going to falsify a report he's going to end up losing his job which makes absolutely no sense because thorn your superior is literally telling you to end the investigation, so you will lose your job if you continue. But he continues, and almost gets killed. Yeah. It's... No, I just think it's fascinating that he's in a dystopia and doesn't understand how... Right, right? (laughs) Such a good fucking point, though. Um, And... Basically, um, uh, Thorn gets, then like we cut to a different scene, Thorn kind of gets thrust into a, I want to call it a riot, because like we said, that Soylent Green is in very high demand, um, and there ends up being a shortage, so people start basically killing each other to get to Soylent Green, um, and he gets in the middle of it, and then the person- Sorry, I thought of a pun, and then I couldn't say it. Say it, say it. Because I was like, that'll spoil it. Oh, oh no. okay. okay. But I say it, but you keep it. <laughs> so if you murder mm. to become to get Soylent Green, it's going to get easier to get Soylent Green. <laughs> oh my god! How I'm could sorry. you? I'm sorry. You can cut no, it no, out. I won't. I won't. I won't <laughs> cut it out. No, I'm telling. You, I'm pretty sure everyone knows the twist in Soylent Green. Um. I won't, I won't, I won't. But basically, um, Thorn almost gets killed by the person that was stalking him. Um, and that, but fortunately, this killer ends up dying in the middle of a uh, police riot control vehicle. Very gruesome. And uh, honestly, not as gruesome as most um, movies nowadays. But anyway, um, we go back to um, Saul because we did say that Thorne uh, gave him books from uh, Simonson's um, li- like private library called Soylent uh, Oceanographic Survey Report 2015 to 2019. Um, and the books conclude that the like there's oceanographic reports and they tell us that the oceans can no longer produce the plankton that is used to make Soylent Green. So it confirms to Saul that Simonson's murder uh, was in order to kind of like prevent this from leaking out into the public because Simonson, we said that he was confessing to priests. He was like constantly crying. Um, he, you know, Cheryl keeps saying that he keeps looking into the distance. Most times he doesn't really want to do snoo snoo. He just seems very sad. The reason is he's troubled by something. Okay. What is he? But, but what? what could he possibly be troubled by? I don't know. <laughs> so, whatever it is. I do know. I do know. <laughs> whatever it is, it distresses Saul greatly to the point that he goes to a government clinic to be euthanized. And before, yep, Thorn tries to stop him, but fails. Um, and before he dies, Saul tells Thorn of his discovery. 
What is the discovery? What is it? Remember, can I say you it? can, can, you can say, say it? it, but let me give a hint first. Remember when I said waste okay. disposal plant where Simonson's body was taken? What do they do at the waste disposal plant, Fern? So I like green as people. <laughs> I like people who just want like green. Soylent green is people. Indeed. So basically, Thorne goes to one of the waste disposal plants. He sees human corpses being processed and turned into Soylent green. Um, they discover him, but he manages to escape. Um, and as he returns um, to basically the city, he's ambushed by Fielding, the bodyguard, and his men. Um, and he ma he manages to find refuge in the church where that we went to in the beginning where um Simonson confessed and where the priest was basically killed um thorn manages mm -hmm. to kill his attackers but he's seriously wounded um uh, in a gun battle and then we get a bunch of uh, paramedics who are trying to help thorn out and as they're trying to tend to him what does he yell out is people i mean like if i i know that he was trying to spread the truth and all but i feel like i would misinterpret that like if he just screamed that in my face and i was the paramedic i'd be like oh man dude like you're so passionate about soylent green you think like soylent green is the people and i would just start clapping and eating my soylent green <laughs> this is and everyone clapped. And everyone clapped. I mean, honestly, like, dude, people say all kinds of things as they're bleeding out. Mm -hmm. That sounds so fucking morbid. It was, it was like that guy, um, there was, there's a viral mm, clip mm, going around mm. right now where this guy um, kind of baited out a child predator. Mm -hmm. And he was in, like, I think it was Target, and he was um, shouting out, like, this guy came here to meet a 14-year-old or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and um, so the people were not sure what was going on because he was not being very clear about it. And so this uh, this lady was like, you're being weird. And he's like, I'm being weird. I'm being weird. Um, and, you know, like, because he'd been communicating with this mm. guy. There'd been this whole thing. This guy had sent him inappropriate pictures. Uh, but he didn't communicate any of that. So he's like, I'm being weird. Then why do I have a picture of this guy's asshole? Why do I have a picture of this guy's asshole? <laughs> that makes absolutely no <laughs> sense. Like, you're not healthy. You've got to communicate. Oh my God. Why do I have... <laughs> and it's like, you're not making a good case for yourself, buddy. I mean, like, honestly, I, I would be like, why do you have a picture of this guy's asshole? <laughs> Anyone would. Anyone right. would. That's a weird thing to say, especially when you really have not provided clear context. Like if he said, like, "Oh, I'm in. I'm doing an a, a investigation on a child predator, and I was talking to this guy, and he thought I was my like little brother, and he was sending me inappropriate pictures that you do not send to, uh, you know, a minor." Um, I think people would have been behind that, but why do I have a picture of this guy's asshole does not Right, it like, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and to your point, so the greenest people might not either. I, I think Thorn might need to communicate a little bit. Well, to be fair, he was dying, so, you know. 
I, I don't, like, I don't think they tell us if he actually died or made it, so, um, thank you, Thorn, for your contribution. Um, but anyway, uh, that's the story of Soylent Green, and I thought it was very interesting because, um, I did tell you guys a bit about ecological dystopias and, um, kind of what caused the rise of ecological dystopias as a genre. I mentioned things like the Mad Adam trilogy, which is one of my favorite series of all time. Take a look at it. There's also a book, I, I can't remember the exact name. It was like New York, I think, 2144 or something, where basically, um, again, the world drowns and everyone starts living in the higher levels of skyscrapers to avoid drowning. Um, so there's a lot of that nowadays, but there's this really interesting article that tells us why Soylent Greens kind of stands out as an ecological dystopia, is that it's called In the Ends of the Earth, Nature, Narrative, and Identity in Dystopian Film by Roland Hughes. He makes a very important note. There are different kinds of ecological dystopias depending on which catastrophic perspective we're exploring, uh, mainly whether or not the ecological dystopia is anthropocentric. So you know what anthropocentric means, right? Fern, quiz time! thinking of like and like the the anthropology so yeah it, it would be like centered on anthropology you're right um it centers on humankind like anthropocentric so yeah yeah, yeah. I was no so it's it's basically like for example which is like let's say is it to save the environment from humans for humans or is it more to preserve, um, like, nature for the sake of nature? So what I mean by that is, for example, there's another ecological dystopia called Silent Running. Um, they're looking at the effects of our hubris on the environment, which morphs from something more anthropocentric, um, which is saving the environments, like I said, from humans, for humans, to the character's final, final realization that to protect the forest is to separate them from humans entirely. Does that make sense? So it's basically the character comes to this realization mm -hmm. where um, humans exploiting nature and preserving nature can't exist. Like it's not on the same plane of existence. So what the character ends up doing is that I need to separate nature from humans. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a theme I've seen a lot. Um, or like it's just like one step removed from the yeah. final snap where it's like humans are the issue people are the issue we need to like exactly um and that's it's actually something that's been discussed in multiple pieces of fiction which is overpopulation um and its effects mm -hmm. on nature so like mm -hmm. soylent green the focus is different it's not the effects of ecological downfall on nature it's the effects of ecological downfall on human beings meaning that if you've noticed throughout the um movie we've discussed things like the loss of luxuries the loss of hot water soap clean accommodation food accessibility to clean water the degradation of the human being into fodder so it's less about how we have destroyed nature and that is a bad thing in and of itself because we need to take a, into account that we do not live on this planet 
alone. There are animals that share it with us. There are plants. There are other creatures that share the ecosystem with us. It's more that we ruined the ecosystem and now we can't continue to exploit it. And it's not the point isn't made to like look down on um, how the characters sort of view the loss of nature, but it's just seen as we need to be careful not to ruin nature because otherwise how are future um, generations going to survive? And I've seen this kind of divide in environmental activists as well. Some environmental activists, some people especially who are behind like the vegan movement and everything are like, we need to preserve nature for the sake of preserving nature because we do not own this planet. Um, other creatures have just as much of a right to it as we do. Whereas other people are like, no, we need to preserve these resources for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So I don't think there's any right or wrong way to go about it. I'm just saying that it's a very, these are very interesting takes on, like basically you have this, like you want to do the same thing, but for different end goals. Um, and Hughes, the person who wrote the um article makes an inc incredibly good point he mentions that in one scene Saul and Thorne have the following conversation Thorne goes I know I know when you were young people were better and Saul goes oh nuts people were always rotten but the world was beautiful so nature does not make moral human beings nature perhaps is incompatible with humans who are destined to drain it of everything it's worth to extract their own comfort does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Our final point before I wrap this episode up, like a Soylent Green burrito, um, is it possible for us okay. to use humans as num-nums? I read about this. I know the answer. <laughs> Tell us the answer. Elaborate. I read a really interesting article about this, and basically they said that... Um, the Soylent Green product was possible in many ways. You can reduce meat to a powder, which can be used in baking situations. In fact, we were talking about how like you could make a pseudo Soylent Green thing by using protein powder um, in, in substitute of the human meat powder. Um, and yeah. it would actually be uh, nutritionally sufficient for our needs. However, um, the way that Soylent Green is talked about in the book, uh, you're, you're not, you would probably spread disease because when you are um, managing cattle for consumption, there are all sorts of antibiotics you give them. You exactly. uh, go, go through certain processes to make sure there's consistency and flavor. And um, there's a lot that goes into making sure it's safe to eat. Uh, and if you're just picking up the corpses of random dead people, there's no way for you to do that. You know, like you would have to exactly um, sort of have a human herd that you cultivate in a certain way to make sure that it would be safe for consumption. Um, that got its rounds of anti antibiotics and was raised in a way that would make the meat good. And you know what novel discusses that in particular? Like everything you have just said. Tender is the Flesh. Tender is the Flesh, which is a novel that I am going to be discussing a different time so that I don't overload you guys with cannibalism. But basically it looks into all of that. Um, it makes some really interesting points too because it starts out being like um, the reason we're eating human beings is because of overpopulation. And then we kind of 
and like there's a lot more to lab- elaborate on but the thing is that if we're eating human beings to solve overpopulation why are we breeding human beings as food <laughs> does that make sense because the whole point of all of these kinds of um stories is that there are too many humans so we should stop eating the animals we should start eating the humans but like fern said it's impossible to um do that without specifically breeding human beings for consumption mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. a bit like yeah you it's it's a very like uncontrolled process otherwise because you don't know what kinds of medication these people are taking you don't know um you don't know whether they're infected with something that can actually end up causing you severe neurodegenerative disorders (laughs) mad cow disease yeah Um, like just for example like what if one of the people that they picked up in soylent green and processed into soylent green had mm-hmm. AIDS, you know, like then yep. all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people with with AIDS or some or hepatitis B that would be or what hepatitis B if you come into contact with the blood or other bodily fluids. Right. So there there are a lot of ways that could go very wrong. Is the point exactly, <laughs> exactly. There are a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, it's not sustainable otherwise. So yeah, thank you for coming to me and Fern's TED talk about how to, um, properly serve humans as food. Next time we'll provide you guys with recipes. There wasn't that a Twilight, uh, episode, how to serve humans, but it was like a cookbook. <laughs> was it Twilight, or, or was it a was Twilight Zone Simpsons? episode? It might've been Simpsons. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, no, it's Twilight Zone. You're right. It's called to serve man. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it was a cookbook. Sorry. Yeah, it says, it is considered one of the best episodes of the series, particularly for its final twist. Do I want to spoil it for myself? I might have already spoiled it. I'm sorry. (laughs) You keep doing this. Oh. Oh. I see. (laughs) Sorry, the quiet revelation here. (laughs) (laughs) I see. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't like it when people break the fourth wall and ask me if I would like to be eaten. Well, would you? Depends on the kind of eating, I guess. One, I wouldn't really mind. The other, I might be a bit freaked out by. You can guess. <laughs> I was going to say, but... <laughs> Never mind. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to touch that one. I've decided. I'm going to back Touch away. it. <laughs> touch it. No. no. Caress it. No, that's so gross romantically listen i refuse go ahead i'm listening what what were you gonna say how are you gonna save that nothing there is no saving it a lot of see this is why i can never use my listen thing with fern i can use it with other people because they'll usually just laugh it off but when i'm i go like fern listen she's just like what what am i you know say something and then i'm like oh crap what do I do? You know what else though? Like what I also think because you go like listen, and and I've started doing it too now. But um, I always think of like uh, my Zelda fans will know the the very listen. <laughs> oh, I was going I to say. <laughs> I don't want to like listen. no. She, I'm not listening. Of, yeah. She she would say that a lot of times when I really didn't want to listen, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, that's why she's telling you to listen. You're distracted hippocampus. Me and Fern okay. have come to the conclusion that I should stop using her ass to 
say stuff. Like I can no longer say your ass, your distracted ass. So I, well, because I appreciate I mean, her for can. her mind. You can. It's just after the blunder the other day. <laughs> I can't even remember what the blunder was. I need to look it up. I'll go through our chats. No, she. It was something like, um, she's like, I appreciate you, but she can't say I appreciate you. She says she has to say oh. I appreciate your ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It sounded way too sexual. It was. Then I lost it for like half an hour. It was really funny. And then, and the thing is, when you make a blunder like that, and you have a friend who roasts you as much as like Fern roasts me, you can. There's no saving yourself. You can not be like, no. Well, actually, well, I meant because then that will open the door to more roasting. So I just had to wait there and like wait for her to finish laughing. And just like I may not be done laughing yet. <laughs> it yeah, you're. Really it's, funny. it's okay. It's okay, fam. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate your ass. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed my episode on Soylent Green. It will not be the only ecological dystopia I make an episode on. There will be more. I'm sure there will be. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us on this wild ride. Like I said, hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, then feel free to give us a follow because we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you really enjoyed this episode, then feel free to leave us a review because we would love to hear what you think. Or follow us on social media. We are available on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, more mostly recently Tumblr, and we have an email where you can tell us about the weird happenings in your life or make suggestions on what we should talk about next. But until next time, this is... Crow and this is Fern signing off. Bye.